0: And so this morning, we're going to take the hammer of the word and apply it to our hearts so that we might pound this nail just a little deeper and give us a little deeper understanding of the providence of God. And we're going to do that by looking at the experience of a woman whose name was Naomi. And so if you will, turn with me to the book of Ruth. Uh, The book of Ruth, eighth book in the Bible, after... Uh, Deuteronomy, you have Joshua, Judges, and then Ruth just before 1 Samuel. Uh, The book of Ruth is mainly a story about a woman named Naomi upon whom tragedy befell when she and her husband were in the land of Moab. Uh, Each chapter of this book unravels a series of events in which we see that God in his providence through his unseen hand was at work in the life of this woman though at first she could not see it. There's a great hymn by the hymn writer William Cooper that expresses to us the truth of God's providence, a hymn called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And it says this, Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace, Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. That theme of the mysterious ways of God is unfolded in three stages through this story. We see the unseen hand of God doing three things in the life of Naomi and those who are close to her. And the first thing that we see is the unseen hand of God afflicting. The unseen hand of God afflicting. Notice the first five verses. It says, Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years and both Mahlon and Kilion died. So that the, wo- the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So we see here six events in the life of Naomi, all of which she certainly did not want to happen. And they're very simple. They're easy to see. First of all, there was a famine. This was not just something in the life of Naomi, but this was a national calamity, a crisis in the land. And the famine was so bad that it forced Naomi and her family, her husband Elimelech, and their two sons, to relocate. They actually left their home country of Judah, and they moved to the foreign land of Moab. And then when she gets there, life becomes even worse because her husband, the provider and the supporter of her family, her husband Elimelech, dies. Obviously not something she wanted to happen. And then to make matters worse, her sons decide to take for themselves foreign wives. And you've got to understand that for an Israelite, God's plan and God's will was for Israelite young men to marry within the children of Israel. And so there is little doubt that Naomi probably was very deeply grieved to see her two sons take for themselves these foreign women, these Moabite women. And then they lived there for a decade, for 10 years. And it's interesting that for 10 years, it appears that these two foreign women were barren. They had no children. There's no mention of children in this story until chapter 4. And that's a big part of the problem that Naomi's going to face because as she goes back to the land of Israel, to her people, she has no heir. And she has to have an heir if the name of her family is to continue rather than being cast out of the children of Israel. But there's no heir. There's just 10 years of barrenness. And then in verse 5, the last thing that happens, both of her sons, both of them die. So a famine has been in the land. She's been moved to a completely different country. Her husband has died. She's now a widow. Her children have married two foreign women. These Moabite women are barren for 10 years, and then her two sons die. There are two important things to notice about these six events. First of all, Naomi didn't have control over any of them. She didn't have control over the famine. She didn't have control over the death of her husband. She didn't have control over whether they moved or where they would go to. She was moved by her husband. She didn't have control over what women her sons would marry. She didn't have control over whether or not they had children or not or the death of of her sons. So, So there are six things that have greatly upset the life of this woman, Naomi, none of which she had any control over. And the second thing to notice is that God did have control over every one of these. God did have control over the famine. We know this because Ezekiel five sixteen and 17, God is speaking to Jerusalem when he says, When I send against you the deadly arrows of famine, arrows for destruction, which I will send to destroy you, And when I bring more and more famine upon you and break your supply of bread, I will send famine and wild beasts against you, and they will rob you of your children. I am the Lord. I have spoken. God sends famine. God is the one who sent famine to Israel. So God has control over the first circumstance, and verse 6 confirms this because it tells us that God had visited his people again to give them food, to bring an end to the famine. So God gave the famine, and then 10 years later when God was ready, he visits his people again and gives them food. So God is in control over the famine. God is also in control over our journeys. So this sojourn to the land of Moab, God was in control over that. Remember how James says in James chapter 4, he says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So our journeys are according to the will of God. Acts chapter 6 and verse 17 tells us that it is God who determines the boundaries of our dwelling places. So God was determining where Naomi was going to live for these 10 years. Thirdly, God has control over life and death. 1 Samuel 2.6 says the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. So the Lord is the one who took the life of Naomi's husband and sons. And then God is even in control over marriage. You Remember how in the book of Judges that Samson, he also married outside of his people. He married a Philistine woman. And his father and mother, they were deeply grieved that he had chosen this Philistine woman. But Judges 14.4 says, his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. For he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. So God is in control even over marriage. And lastly, God is in control over the conception of children. God is sovereign over the womb. Remember when Rachel was barren and jealous of her sister Leah, who had borne Jacob three sons. And she complained to her husband Jacob saying, Give me children or I shall die. And in Genesis 32... It says that Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? So God is the one who gives children and who withholds children. Psalm 113.9 says that God makes the barren woman the joyous mother of children. So all of these things that had happened in the life of Naomi, God was in control over all of them, and Naomi was not. And that teaches us a very important lesson. It teaches us that God's providence extends into the most common and ordinary things of our lives. God's providence extends into the most common and ordinary affairs of life, such as food and famine, journeys and dwelling places, life and death, marriage and the bearing of children. And we will see that God was involved even in these events that befell Naomi, there was an unseen hand of God afflicting her, an unseen hand afflicting her. In verses 6 through 14, Naomi, she decides to go back to Bethlehem, and she tells her daughters-in-law to to just go back to to, to their people. And the dialogue here is very important. Look with me at verse 11. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Now, this is important because it alludes to the Mosaic law of leveret marriage. So uh, let's turn together, if you have your Bibles, to Deuteronomy chapter 25, uh, verses 5 through 6. So just a few chapters back, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 6. There was a law in effect for when a person would be married, and then her husband would die, and there would be no children. Then, according to this law, she was supposed to marry the brother or the nearest relative, the nearest kinsman, so as to raise up a seed in the name of that family. Deuteronomy 25, verse 5. If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So that's what what was at stake with Naomi. The name of the family would be blotted out of Israel unless there was a seed raised up for her. But she was too old have a husband. She had no more children. These Moabite uh, women, they had no children. So Naomi is thinking that it is absolutely hopeless for them to accompany her back to her people in Israel. Instead, they just needed to go back to their own people and find husbands. Well, Orpah does go. It says in verse 14, then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So Ruth refuses to go. And listen to what Ruth says in verse 16 and following. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. Now this is just amazing because Ruth is using covenant language here and makes a promise to Naomi that is deeper even than the promise, the covenant of marriage. Do you see that? It's even deeper than marriage because when a spouse dies, the surviving spouse is free to move to another place, free to remarry into another family. But Ruth is saying, I'm going to go with you, and, and I'm going to die with your people. So where you die, I'm going to die, and I'm going to be buried where you are buried. So she, she's making a lifetime commitment to never go back to her people, never to go back to her pagan gods, never to go back, even if Naomi dies. Just an amazing thing, amazing that Ruth would have such deep commitment to to this old woman. Now notice verses 19 to 21. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi comes back to our hometown. She comes back to Bethlehem, and the women all came around her and say, Is this Naomi? And the word Naomi means pleasant. And Naomi tells them, do not call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara. Call me bitter, because the the Lord Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Now, there was something right and something wrong about what Naomi says here. First, there was something right. She she was right to view her affliction as coming from God's hand. She was right to do that. Her theology is is right here. She she says the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me in verse 20. Verse 21a, the Lord has brought me back empty. Uh, 21b, the Lord has testified against me. 21c, the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So four times and five times if you count verse 13, five times Naomi ascribes her afflictions directly to the hand of God. And she was right to do that. So there's something right about what Naomi says, but there's also something wrong. And what was wrong was Naomi's interpretation of these dark providences of God. She says, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Now that wasn't true. That wasn't true. She was misinterpreting what God had done because Naomi, she didn't come back empty. She came back with a young woman who was so committed to her that Naomi has no idea what God is about to do in her life because of Ruth and through Ruth. She didn't come back empty. She came back without some of the blessings she wanted, but she came back with a blessing that she was totally overlooking. And, brothers and sisters, this is so much like us. We tend to count our trials and forget our blessings but God wants us to do just the opposite. So often in life, we interpret the providence of God wrongly. We're just like Cooper who wrote in his hymn, blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his works in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. Do you ever do that? you ever scan the works of God in in blind unbelief, and you're looking at your circumstances, and all you can see are the clouds overhead, but you don't see that those clouds are full of mercy that are going to break upon your head. You cannot see the smiling face of God behind the frowning providence, because you're interpreting the providence of God wrongly. And so often we do that. And we need to learn, as Naomi is going to learn, that even though it looks like the hand of God, the hand of the Lord, is against her, actually the hand of the Lord is for her. He has a plan. He has a purpose. And he is working for her, even though on the surface he is afflicting her. So we see the unseen hand of God afflicting. But there is hope here, and that hope is all bound up in this girl named Ruth. And we get a glimpse of that hope in the final verse of chapter 1 as the chapter uh, which uh, had opened with that severe famine, it now closes with the beginning of barley harvest in verse 22. And so we see a transition. We now begin to see the unseen hand of God orchestrating, not just afflicting, but now orchestrating events on behalf of Naomi and her family. And this is really the theme of both chapters 2 and 3. But the focus of the chapters is slightly different. In chapter 2, we see God orchestrating through just the happenstances of life. And in chapter 3, we see God orchestrating through human design, human action. But notice, first of all, the unseen hand of God working through just the happenstances of life. Verse 1 is giving us some information that we need to know. But you've got to understand that this information, it's information that Ruth didn't know. And Naomi had evidently completely forgotten about. Verse 1 says this, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, said to his reapers, the Lord be with you. They answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Now, this is amazing what God is doing here. We, we see God's hand arranging and orchestrating events that these people had absolutely no idea about. Neither Naomi nor Ruth nor Boaz know what's going on here, but several things just fall into place, and they show that the providence of God is at work. There are five events here orchestrated by God without which the rest of the book of Ruth couldn't have been written. So let's just notice Briefly, these five events. First of all, the first one is back in verse 22 of chapter 1. Naomi and Ruth, they just happened to arrive in Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So they couldn't have known the exact time when the harvest would begin. Sometimes it began in April. Other times it began in May. But these two widows, all alone, traveling dangerous roads, they just so happened to make that difficult journey and get there just at the right place Uh, the right point in time because it's only because of the harvest that Ruth is going to go out into the fields and eventually meet Boaz. That was a crucial event and an essential orchestration of, of timing on God's part. Then the second thing, Ruth, she just happens to take the initiative to go glean ears of grain for her and Naomi. And this tells us something more about Ruth's character. Ruth So she is the one who's a stranger in this land, here she is taking the initiative and being very resourceful, conscientious, and helping to provide for this woman. And then notice verse 3. She just happens to start reaping in the field of Boaz. So notice how verse 3 puts it. She set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. She didn't know she was getting into Boaz's field. She just happened to get into Boaz's field. Now, the construction of this sentence emphasizes the point. It literally says in the Hebrew, her chance chanced upon a part of Boaz's field. So this looks like just chance to us, just blind luck. But it's not because God is orchestrating events so as to provide for this family. And then, Verse 4, Boaz, he just happens to arrive from Bethlehem while Ruth was in his field. Now, here's a, a wealthy man. This is a man who probably had more than one field. He was probably involved in the governance of the city of Bethlehem, sitting in the gates with the elders of the city, very busy man, a very wealthy man. He had a lot going on in his life. But he just happened to come to this field at the time of day when Ruth was gleaning in his field. So just again, we we see that this is God working behind the scenes to bring these two to a meeting. And then lastly, Boaz, of all the people working in his field, just happens to notice Ruth. Now Ruth is a poor woman, and there were many, many poor people who would follow the reapers in the field so as to gather leftovers from the harvest. After a decade of famine in the land, you can just imagine how many poor and needy people must have been flocking to these fields at the beginning of the first barley harvest. And out of all of those people, Boaz, for some unearthly reason, literally an unearthly reason, he notices Ruth. So five things happen here to bring these two together. God orchestrates these key events. Two people at the right time of the year, at the right place, doing the right things, just at the right time of day. It's truly amazing. God is clearly at work here. Now, these are the kinds of things, the type of events that we tend to call just the incidentals of life. These are the things that seem trivial to us. These are just small, just happenstances. But God was at work in them. The Baptist pastor Charles Spurgeon said, blessed is that man who sees God In trifles. It is there that it is hardest to see Him, but he who believes that God is there may go from the little providence up to the God of providence. Do you see God in the trifles of life? Do you see God in the happenstances, just the ordinary, everyday circumstances and events in your life all the time? God is there, and He is working out His perfect plan at all times. God is there even in the smallest, trifling, seemingly insignificant events of your life. Now, verses 8 through 14, they record the conversation that Ruth and Boaz have, and this conversation reveals some important things about Ruth. Boaz expresses his kindness to her in verses 8 and 9, and then her response begins in verse 10. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, And said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? So the first thing we see in Ruth is just her humility. And that is almost the exact opposite of how most people treat the circumstances of their lives. Most of us don't say, Why should I find such grace in the eyes of God? Why should I be so kindly favored? Why should I be treated so well? We don't tend to respond that way. We respond, why? why should I be treated so badly? Why do I have to go through this? What did I ever do to deserve this circumstance? We often assume that we deserve so much better. And we do the exact opposite of what Ruth does. But Ruth, she recognizes that she's not worthy, she's not deserving. She has a humble spirit, a humble attitude. And she expresses that by saying, why am I being treated this way? But amazingly, there's an answer to her question because Boaz, he had evidently heard some things about Ruth that brings out this extra kindness. Evidently, when his foreman said she is the young Moabite woman, Boaz realized that she was the girl whom uh, the whole town was talking about. Notice verse 11. But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. So Boaz points out a second quality in Ruth and that was just her sacrificial love, even to the point that she was willing to sacrifice her own comfort, her own convenience, her own welfare for someone else. And Boaz recognizes that. And and then the source of that love is the third quality, and that's found in verse 12. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So there it is. She trusted in God. She came to take refuge under the wings of the one true God. Now, have you ever wondered why this book focuses on Naomi's bitterness and her difficulty, but never once mentions Ruth was ever bitter or afraid? And yet Ruth, if you think about it, she'd lost just as much as Naomi had. R- Ruth had left her father and mother. Ruth had lost her husband and was now a widow. Ruth was barren. for She had no children. Ruth was in a strange country now. Ruth was going through all of the things that Naomi had gone through, but it never once says that Ruth was bitter or Ruth was afraid. And the reason is that Ruth wasn't bitter or afraid because she trusted under the wings of God. Ruth had a steadfast confidence in God that set her free to love. It set her free to sacrifice. It set her free to just absolutely trust in God to meet her needs. And so we never see her complaining or bitter, or fearful in her circumstances. May God make us people like Ruth, people who take refuge under the wings of God. Well, verses 13 through 17 then record how Boaz extends extra kindness to Ruth. He's really showing her extra love, promising her safety and protection, giving her extra provision. He tells his servants to leave a handfuls on purpose for her. So Boaz is really just showing some overtures of love here. And then verses 18 through 23, Ruth goes back to Naomi, tells Naomi what has happened. And I just want to read verse 20 because Naomi here, she suddenly realizes that God is working. Naomi just suddenly, I think hope dawns in her heart and she realizes God is doing something here. Notice what she says in verse 20. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. So the very thing that Naomi had told Ruth in an effort to convince Ruth to go back to her people, that there's no chance of having another husband if you stay with me, no chance of getting married and raising up children. There's no one alive to fulfill that role. Now Naomi recognizes and remembers there is a close relative. Boaz is one of our redeemers. He, He is a man who might fulfill that role, who could marry you, and with whom children could be raised so that our estate is not lost and our name not blotted out from Israel. So God was orchestrating through his providence, these happenstances of life. And now as we look to chapter 3, we see that God was orchestrating not just through the happenstances of life, but even through the designs of man. God is working in chapter 3 through the actual planning and purposes of Naomi and Ruth. And that's an important shift for us to see. Because sometimes we acknowledge the providence of God, but we become unbalanced in our thinking, and we get into a passive mindset. Sometimes we even get to the point where we're, we can be reckless in our response to God's providence in our lives so that we don't do the necessary planning. We don't do the necessary thinking, the necessary praying. We don't do all of the necessary activity that we need to do to bring about God's purposes. God actually works through our own actions God works through what we do so as to bring about his purposes, and that 's what we see in verse uh, or in chapter three, because Naomi recognizes the hand of God, she sees the possibility of marriage here, and Naomi starts putting the pieces together and realizes that she needs to play a part, that, that action is called for. and so she gives very specific instructions to Ruth for what Ruth needs to now do, and we see that in the first five verses. Ruth is instructed by Naomi to make herself attractive. She is to take a bath, to put on perfume, and to get dressed, and to go to this man. And she is to go to the threshing floor where Boaz is sleeping. Now, this is strange counsel. Uh, This is not the kind of advice that most mothers would give to their daughters when searching for a husband. But Naomi, she knows what she's doing, and this makes sense later as it unfolds. Uh, Ruth, she obeys and does exactly everything that Naomi tells her. Look at verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. So you almost see the humor here. This was no ordinary thing. Boaz was shocked to see that here was this woman laying at his feet. So what's going on here? I mean, this looks strange. This almost almost looks like an immoral proposition. But we know that that's not what it is, and we know it's not because of the words that are spoken here. Notice what Ruth says down in verse 9. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, the only other time that this phrase of spreading a wing or a skirt, as this word can be translated both a uh, wing or skirt, uh, the only time this phrase is used of, of spreading a wing or a skirt over someone else in the context of, of lovers is in Ezekiel 16.8. The Lord here is talking to Israel as if the Lord was the husband and Israel was the bride. And this is what the Lord says. Ezekiel sixteen eight. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. So God speaks to Israel in these same terms, and the terms are of covenant love. And what Ruth is saying to Boaz is make a covenant with me. This wasn't a proposition for a one-night stand. This was Ruth saying, I am willing to marry you if you're willing to fulfill your duty to me and to God as my near kinsman and enter into a covenant with me. Become my Redeemer. Now, there's also something else in the book of Ruth itself that confirms this interpretation. The word translated wings in my Bible, it's used only uh, one other time in the book of Ruth itself, and we just saw it back in chapter 2, verse 12. Remember that this is Ruth's very first encounter with Boaz. Boaz is speaking to Ruth, and he uses these words when he says in verse 12 of chapter 2, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. It's the same word. And so Ruth comes to him, and she uses the same language, and she says, Boaz, spread your wings over me. And so there's an important play on words here. And I think that what was going on was that Boaz had already very subtly suggested his own interest in Ruth. He, he had said, you are the kind of woman that trusts in the Lord, and you're trusting under the Lord's wings. And then when Boaz, uh, what he goes on to do is he goes on to treat her very kindly and generously and in a very special and loving way, as if to say, I want to take you under my wings too. So Boaz starts to show her extra kindness and protection. He starts to, to give her these handfuls of purpose. It's like Boaz is romancing her through this and Naomi and Ruth start talking about it and they're interpreting what's going on and they're seeing that Boaz is making some overtures of love here. And so Naomi tells Ruth exactly what Ruth needs to do in order to respond to Boaz. And so you can just see a love story unfolding here. You can see the romance brewing and Boaz's response in verse 10 is so positive. He's just amazed that Ruth is available for him Because evidently, he's an older man. He's not a young man. And he would think that most young women, like Ruth, would be interested in the young men, but she's not. And so he's just overwhelmed with love for her. And in verse 10, he says, "'May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. "'You have made this last kindness greater than the first, "'and that you've not gone after young men, "'whether rich or poor. "'And now, my daughter, do not fear. "'I will do for you all that you ask.'" For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true, said Boaz, that I am a redeemer. And then just as the wheels really get turning, a wrench is just thrown into the whole thing. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. So now it looks like everything's going to unravel again. There's someone else who has this right before Boaz does. And so we're in suspense. How is this going to work out for Ruth And Boaz, they are ready to get married, and yet there's someone else with this kinsman redeemer right before Boaz, and that takes us to the final chapter, chapter 4. Ruth returns to Naomi, verses 14 through 18, and then in chapter 4, we see the unseen hand of God, not afflicting, not just orchestrating, but now the unseen hand of God redeeming. We see God's redeeming providence absolutely astounding us in three ways in chapter 4. First of all, by bringing Ruth and Boaz together, despite the other kinsman redeemer, we have this in the first 12 verses. So Boaz meets with the other kinsman at the gates of the city, and at first the other kinsman says that he will redeem for Naomi in verse 4. But then Boaz tells him that if he's going to redeem the property of Naomi, the inheritance, it's going to involve a marriage to Ruth. And then the kinsman, he says in verse 6, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Marrying Ruth and raising up an heir in the name of Elimelech's family meant that when the Redeemer died, the property he acquired would go back to his present uh, family, not to his present family, but to the, the heir in the line of Elimelech. So the Redeemer's estate would fall into the family of Elimelech, and he was not willing to let that happen. And so Boaz and Ruth are finally able to get married. It's a happy ending. And after all that's happened, that is just astounding. But there's more than that, because this turns out to be a very happy ending also for Naomi. We see this in verses 13 through 16. Ruth and Boaz, they come together. The people are blessing them, and they say in verse 12, May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So there's a prayer here that this woman who was barren, remember barren for 10 years, that she's going to have children. And you've got to understand that if if Ruth, if she remains barren, Naomi, she's still left with this problem. Because unless there is a seed in the family name, in the line of Elimelech, then that, that line of Elimelech is going to be lost. And so there needs to be children here. And then what we see is the prayer is answered in verse 13. It says, so Boaz took Ruth she became his wife and he went into her and the lord gave her conception and she bore a son again explicit god gave conception it is god who opens and closes the womb and so we see god bringing about the flower which is sweet out of this bud which was at one time very bitter for naomi he brings a child the frowning providence becomes a smiling face and notice verse 16 then naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. Just a beautiful picture here. This old woman at the end of her life, thinking everything was hopeless, and here is just this bundle of hope, and she becomes the child's nurse. So God, through his redeeming hand, he amazes Ruth and Boaz. His redeeming providence astounds Naomi in granting a child in the line to her husband's name. But you know what? There is even more going on here than that. The next verse reveals it. God's redemptive providence, it astounds all of us because through this family, a savior will be born. You see what God is doing here. This was part of an immense plan in history because this son, this son of Ruth and and Boaz is Obed. And Obed's son is Jesse. And Jesse's son is David. And David's son. The son of David is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And our salvation is a result of this union because through this family, all of the nations would be blessed as a savior would be born to take upon himself the sins of the world so that all who put their faith in him will be saved, eternally saved. And and so God was working out purposes that were greater than just the love life of this man and woman. Greater than just the broken heart of this bitter old woman, God was working out purposes to save a people for his name. And that is amazing. God is exalted in his providence. And you know what? They didn't understand that. They didn't see that. They could not see all that God was doing. And you cannot see all that God is doing in your life now either. Are there events and circumstances in your life today That you think maybe are are totally out of control. They may be totally outside of whatever you would have planned for for yourself. And you might not live to see the fruit that God intends from that affliction. But you can trust in God. You can trust in Him because God works out great purposes. If we are God's children, we are never victims. We are never victims always beneficiaries of God's providence. He is always working, and he is always, always working for our good. Romans eight twenty eight. that's what this passage that we heard earlier in the service teaches us. God works all things together for good for those who love him, who are the called according to his purpose. Brothers and sisters, it matters not how bad the circumstances are in your life, Whatever it is, I want you to know God has promised you and his word is sure that that will work together with everything else for your good and for his glory. So trust in the providence of the almighty God. Let us pray. Our great merciful God and heavenly Father, how we thank you that you are a wise and a loving and gracious and powerful God. We thank you that you're powerfully working out good in the lives of your people, even those here today who are dealing with a physical problem, a family problem, distress over relationships, job situations, financial situations, whatever circumstances that have been brought into their life by your wise and unseen hand. We thank you for this reminder from your word And we ask that the nail of this truth might be driven just a little bit deeper into our hearts so that we will walk away from this service like Ruth, trusting under your wings. Fill our hearts with unfailing confidence in your good and gracious providence to the glory of our precious Redeemer, our kinsman Redeemer, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.